Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. Green estate in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. I'm playing The Ballad of Davy Crockett by Fess Parker as the opening song this week because we have reviewed a book about the Alamo and about revisionist history regarding the Alamo, and we'll get to that in a little bit. I have a bit of a history with Davy Crockett myself. I was born in Tennessee, in Memphis, not on a mountaintop. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. And my mom, who used to love the old Mickey Mouse Club show, used to play that song for me because I was born in Tennessee, and so I grew up with the myth of Davy Crockett, although I did not mercifully grow up in Texas. I want to call... Katie Smith up to the stage. Hello, Katie. Hello. Hello. We are recording this live on the Clubhouse app, and this Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast will soon appear on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else where podcasts are consumed by podcast listeners. I guess and other people too, but I, I, you have to be a podcast listener to listen to a podcast. That is, that is inherently, the, you're correct, yes. That is the only prerequisite. Uh, so Katie did not write about the Alamo or Davy Crockett this week. She wrote about what she tends to write about a lot for us, which is uh, cancel culture and censorship in the publishing world. Uh, fascinating piece this week, the uh, issue that she called to my attention, uh, about content warnings in books. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Sure. Um, I thought content warnings were pretty harmless. When I would see them in books, I would be kind of like, oh, that's nice. This week, I'm not totally sure who started it or what spurred it, but on you know the literary internet, the subject of content warnings came up and whether or not um, they should be required, whether or not they're positive, whether or not they're negative, whether or not they're, you know, the beginning of maybe some heavier censorship or regulation for authors. Um, I mean, as you can imagine, many, many authors spoke out against content warnings, you know, kind of like the way the NPA uh, rates films, like it's a way to kind of keep content out of people's hands rather than being a tool for readers. You point out in your article, this was spurred, this current debate about content warnings was spurred by an indie horror publishing um, company called Haunt. Yes. And they said that uh, content warnings can help ensure horror is more widely accessible to our community, as if horror could be any more widely accessible. Uh, it, they say it's common courtesy to the amazing community of authors and readers we are part of. You know, what I find interesting about this, Katie, is that it seems to me that this is turning into a battle. And you wrote about this last week or the week before, too, where publishers were um, are starting to force authors to change the content of their books because readers are protesting, are feeling triggered by certain things. I feel like it's this is turning into a, a battle between authors and their readers in, yeah. in a way that I've never seen before. It's wild. 
Yeah, and what I think is interesting about last week, too, is that both, um, as far as I can tell, I mean, who knows, I don't know what's going on between those authors, uh, Ellen Hildebrand and Casey McKiston, like, actually behind closed doors, but they wrote statements saying, I've asked my publisher to change the lines that readers Mm -hmm. found questionable themselves, um, kind of in response to this kind of really acute, upsetting dialogue about their, the... Um, their novels online. So I don't necessarily know if publishers are pushing for it or if readers are pushing for it or what's going on, but um, there's a really interesting like, kind of Twitter rant, Twitter thread that I included from um, somebody named Nick Mamatas. Mamatas, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. but kind of weaving this in, you know, if we start with content warnings, then um, it's not a far jump from readers then being able to strike objectionable material from their, um, from author's work or, you know, uh, asking that books not be published at all or whatever. Um, right. So I think it's really interesting that these are happening together because there's definitely a convergence of this kind of censorship, censorship-adjacent conversation happening. Right. And the thing I'm always concerned about, look, readers are free to be offended by whatever they want. I find things that are offensive in books and movies and TV and uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all do. We all, yeah. you know, we, we all have discernment, or at least ostensibly have discernment. The problem is, is that readers are starting to feel entitled to tell the authors what they can write, and then the authors are buckling under this pressure. It's this sensorial impulse that I find uh, disturbing, you know. And it's like, it's like it, there's something went wrong in our education system uh, where people don't seem to feel like they're that they feel like censorship is okay because if something offends their sensibilities, yeah. and I, it's just weird. I don't understand yeah, I mean, the impulse. I can I can understand the impulse when things are like directly hate speech. You know, if you're if you're writing things that are definitely harmful. But I mean, I read that red uh, red white and royal blue Casey McKiston rom com, and the line was just like about. Uh, it's about like the president of the United States' like son who's in a romance and he just like it's kind of a throwaway line about like oh the ambassador to Israel screwed something up today or whatever like it's like it's really it's just mentioning Israel more or less <laughs> you know well the problem is, is you can say hate speech is is the problem is anything can be interpreted as hate speech right and and because of the internet and because of writers and readers being extremely online and in some cases knowing each other one another personally mm-hmm. um, the readers feel entitled to dictate the content of, of things mm-hmm. you know as an author myself the only way I would change anything and I, I change stuff in my posts on book and film globe if I get a fact incorrect yeah. or if I spell something wrong you know, yeah. the, the, these are the kinds of things that need to be changed and have been changed uh, in newspapers and magazines and even books throughout the decades. I will say the one thing, you know, and this is a great piece on Book and Film Globe, uh, authors warn about content warnings in books. At least authors are starting to wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I was really impressed and surprised by the amount of response and also just the amount of authors sharing like, Hey, look, there are websites out there that 
um, kind of aggregate these content warnings for you. And I wrote this book. It's about X. And look at all these content warnings that are out there that are just, you know, incorrect, that are offensive, that are um, pejorative, that are keeping my book out of people's hands. Um, that's not something that I'm not an author. That's not something that I know about or have had any experience with. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that can go awry, you know, if, if someone has an axe to grind, if there's mm-hmm. someone who feels like, they, you know, maybe they should have gotten this, this you know, genre publishing slot where another writer did, you know, who knows, there could be a, a jilted ex-lover of some sort who decides to take out a content warning vengeance. There's yeah, it reminds me of that Lauren Huff thing from like a month or two ago, where, I mean, granted, she was going crazy on social media and coming at people on Twitter, but in response, people did like tank her novel on Good, or her memoir on Goodreads. So there is a power in that, whether or not it's justified or legit or whatever, you know? It, it you know, it's like being extremely online, make, it, it brings you almost too close to your readership, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you should be able to just shoot your book out into the void and not, uh, and, and not have to worry about about changing it once it's there. Uh, unless, again, like I said, there's something like some kind of Wrong. egregious yeah. factual error um, that, that that needs to be repaired. So, I don't know. It's a weird uh, trend. Um, the only thing I'll say is, is that, you know, Katie, you, you do such a great job uh, chronicling this trend. Uh, you know, it's like, this is, I know this wasn't your intention when you started writing for us, but this beat has really, you know, you really like, I think, pushed the debate forward. And, you know, I know I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. I hope that our readers appreciate it. You know, Katie Smith's reporting uh, is featured strongly on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. You are the most extremely online publishing reporter out there. Thank you. And it's not even um, many, it's not even your full many hours job. I spend on Twitter and my future carpal tunnel really appreciate the affirmation. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you know, maybe um, maybe we can. Uh, hopefully, you know, you're young still. Hopefully, there'll be a carpal tunnel treatment for you. <laughs> You yeah, know, thanks. waiting 15 years down the road or something. Anyway, thanks, uh, Katie. We will uh, we'll talk to you soon. I know you got to get back to your your day job. You have a date in court, so to speak, and um, and and I know there'll be more of this to come. So thanks. Thank you. All right, Katie Smith, uh, writing for Book and Film Globe. So up next, as promised, we're going to talk about the Alamo and a new book called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. I reviewed it uh, in this week's, on this week's website. Uh, it was written by three, three, not just one, not just two, but three Austin-based authors, Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Stanford. And I have summoned another Austin, or at least Central Texas-based writer, to talk with me about Forget the Alamo. Omar Gayaga is here on the clubhouse How's it going, Omar? I'm doing great. Good. Now, I know that this is a book that is, you know, this book just came out uh, about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago. So I know it's on your radar. I, I know you haven't read it yet. However, you are, um, I believe you, you grew up in San Antonio, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, most, most of my life. My dad is Air Force, and, you know, we spent a lot of time in San Antonio. I've lived in Austin since, since the late 90s. Uh, I, yeah, I grew up in South Texas and, and San Antonio, so I, I uh, have a lot of Texas history classes uh, burned in my brain, but yeah, I, I'm, I know the authors as well. I, I know I've written for Jason Stanford uh, and, and friends with him. So yeah, I, I kind of was watching as this book was kind of coming together. Yeah, and seeing their social media posts about like the back kind of the, as they were writing it and putting it together. So it's been interesting to watch now the reaction now that it's out there. Yeah, 
it's getting a lot of attention because, you know, it, 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 the Alamo is a real hot button issue uh, politically. And, you know, Donald Trump mentioned it, the beautiful, beautiful Alamo in his final State of the Union address. And there were some uh, some minor skirmishes during the George Floyd protests at the Alamo between, uh, you know, left wing historical revisionists and right wing um, I don't know what you call them, gun-toting historical defenders. Uh, not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> collectors, there. Neil. They're collectors. The battle. No one. No one was. No one was shot. It was the the, the battle of the Alamo was 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 refought. And so this book um, is, you know, does a, does a lot of things. It's an excellent, excellent book. Forget the Alamo. The, the, in its first third, it sort of retells the story of the Alamo and sort of the founding battles of Texas and talks about – I, I got to read this quote. It's, it's from the end of the book – about Jim Bowie, Colonel William Travis, and Davy Crockett. They write – these are the sort of the three heroes of the Alamo. Bowie was a murderer, slaver, and con man. Travis was a pompous, racist, agitator, and syphilitic lech. Ouch. And Crockett was a self-promoting old fool who was captive to his own myth. And they also point out that Davy Crockett, you know, was not from Texas, that he just kind of stumbled into the Alamo at the last second. They they equated to Mark Twain booking passage onto the Titanic. And, and they also point out that, you know, Travis, who was in charge of the garrison at the Alamo, they, they knew Santa Ana was coming with a huge army, could have easily just bailed and, 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 and pulled back to fight another day. You know, because, you know, you know the history, you know, Santa Ana was defeated pretty quickly after the Alamo. It's not like we didn't have the forces or Texas didn't have we. Texas didn't have the forces to defeat him. Anyway, so the whole thing, so the first third of the book deconstructs that. And then there's sort of a second third is is... Talks about the historical battle over the Alamo myth, and you know, I, I played the Davy Crockett song at the beginning about how Walt Disney created this legend of Davy Crockett, and there were these coonskin caps. John Wayne starred in the an Alamo movie that kind of glorified what they call the heroic Anglo narrative, and then and then finally they get to talking about the Alamo revisionism, about how Latin American historians, feminist historians, and Black historians have started to say, well, wait a second. You know, not everybody um, sees the Alamo the same way. Mm-hmm. Even even the recent, uh, I guess it was the Dennis Quaid, Patrick Wilson movie. I was at the premiere for that. Uh, you know, the, the the red carpet and all that in San Antonio, and it, you know, it 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 tried to you know shoehorn in you know some Latino faces and, and make it a little bit more diverse, but it was essentially the same story, the same myth, you know, told again, uh, you know, as as a big budget uh, Hollywood but film. That was the 2004 movie. It was slightly grittier and, and better than the John Wayne movie. You know, it wasn't as hackneyed, but yeah, it's just, you know, again, it's the same thing. So, I mean, no, my, my question is, so one of the things they do is they they interview. Uh, Various social Mexican American social scientists historians, and they talk. They talk about how um, you know there's this moment in because this this myth is pounded into your. I didn't grow up in Texas, but my son went to school here, and this this myth is pounded into your head when you're when you're educated in Texas that um, uh, these men heroically defended Texas against evil Mexican invaders. And there's a point in in uh, sort of uh, Latino students' lives where they people start telling them that they killed Davy Crockett and that they're evil. I don't. I don't. No, I know you're. I know you're of Mexican descent. I don't know if that if, if anyone ever told you that you killed Davy Crockett. 
Uh, not personally, no. And, no. and I just for the record, I did not kill Davy Crockett. Yeah. Um, but no, yes, that is burned. You know, that is like beaten into your head. You know that these heroic uh, people died. You know, defending Texas, and then, then you know Texas came back and got its revenge. And it, yeah, that myth is is sold over and over again. And even even when you visit the Alamo now, it's it's still. Very hurtful and harmful for you. It must have been very, very, very terrible for you growing up. I, I kind of didn't care. I'm kidding. It's triggering for you, I know. Yeah, but if you look at what's around the Alamo now, I mean, it's a big tourist trap. It's Ripley's yeah. Believe It or Not and a bunch of, you know, just, you know, crap shops, you know, around it. You know, it, it's really, when you visit, is very kind of underwhelming. Well, um, yeah. And that, that's part of the battle over it now is yeah. what do we do with this site? Right. Well, they talk about it, you know, and George P. Bush, the half Hispanic, uh, I think I believe his nephew of George W. Bush, uh, uh-huh. is, is in charge of sort of reimagining uh, the Alamo site. And there's a big fight over what to do with it. And, you know, it's like the, it's a major, at least in our, mythologically, a major historical site, but you compare it to what, you know, is, is surrounds, say, the Independence Hall or the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia or, or, other, or Civil War battlefields. The Alamo is, 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 a, uh, is a complete joke, and they're trying to reimagine it, but it's such a political football that it, it's hard. You know, there's so many people in Texas who want that heroic Anglo narrative uh, maintained. And so, you know, any revisionist history at all is just is, is met with a lot of resistance. And then there's a, there's another bit um, in the book toward the end. They talk about this is an ironic twist that the musician Phil Collins is important in the uh, in the reconstruction of the Alamo. I don't know if you knew about this or not. Yeah, if, if you read, if you wanted just a flavor of this book, and, and you're not committed to buying the whole book yet um this month's texas monthly cover story is a as a big the cover story is basically just a big expert excerpt from this book that tells sort of the phil collins story which is very entertaining very basically he collects fraudulent Alamo artifacts, millions of dollars worth, and has donated his entire collection to some preservation fund or whatever. I don't know exactly what it is. And and it's like, and you know, so Phil Collins has sort of, uh, you know, it's like his, it's like it's not his midlife crisis. It's his, this is boomer crisis. He's become an Alamo head, and uh, he totally buys into the heroic Anglo narrative. So it, it's just, he did not go to school in Texas, I imagine, but he's also no. had that kind of burned into his brain, that Davy Crockett myth. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, he's from that era. He probably watched that show, you know, and he probably had a coonskin cat. And so it's just, it's just funny that that's that, you know, it's like the sort of ironic late Alamo twist. I, I suspect that eventually they're going to, re, you know, the, the Alamo reconstruction is going to happen and they're going to have to, like, at the very least, acknowledge the contributions of Tejano soldiers and of uh, and of uh, Seguin. Um, there was a there was a soldier named Seguin who was a very key in sort of the defense of the Alamo. They're gonna they're gonna have to acknowledge that. And another thing they point out too in the book quite quite clearly is that the Mexicans uh, and Santa Ana included were liberals and they were strongly anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, ironic twist after ironic twist. Uh, but it, it's such, I mean, the, the, I'm glad you brought up the George P. Bush stuff because now he's running for uh, Texas Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now it's even up an even hotter political football for him. Now he's running for office, you know, and yeah. trying to unseat um, this uh, this guy. And <laughs> this Ken Paxton. Paxton. 
Ken Paxton, the, 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 the face of evil. Talk about a syphilitic lech, my God. Um, you know, and, you know, George P. Bush is a much more moderate Republican. And, and I think that moderate Republicans who do exist to some extent, you know, probably don't really care much that the Alamo is being uh, reconsidered. I mean, if we're going to reconsider everything else in our history, why not reconsider the Alamo? And, you know, and this is just forget the Alamo is a great book because it's not like it's modern, but it's not I wouldn't say it's uber didactic and super woke. You know, it's, it's written it's written like a good Texas Monthly article. It's very, it's very, the tone I got from the excerpt is bemused, like, wow, look at, look at all this, you know, how, how much, how passionate people are about it and how interesting that is. And I, and I love the bit in the, um, in the story about how, you know, under George P. Bush, you know, it went from, yeah, you know what, let's, let's do a little bit of revisionist history. Yeah. Let's acknowledge that these, you know, what the reality of it was and how over the, you know, the the Trump, and I think the story does a good job of, of saying over the Trump years, how that shifted to, oh no, we can't do that at all. Yeah. Can't even well, acknowledge became, the reality of what happened. It became a football like the rest of our history, you know, and, um, and, and so you have, uh, you have the radical left, which, which is trying, is trying to say like, okay, this country is founded in the original sin of slavery and racism. And then you have the radical right, which is saying, um, no, it wasn't, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I, I wouldn't I even call it radical. I wouldn't even call that point of view radical to just say this is the facts of what happened at the Alamo. You know, even well, that is controversial now. Yeah, yeah, right. It is. But I think that, you know, the, the thing they make very clear in the book is that the people who defended the Alamo, many of them were pro-slavery and also believed in individual liberty. Like it's possible they're, they're hoping to chart a middle ground where you're like, okay, let's not be racist. Let's not tell lies about history. And let's also defend the concept of individual liberty and freedom and private property. I think there's a lane for that. This was pre-Civil War. I mean, they were products of their time as well. So, yeah, They were products of their time. And in some ways, the book makes a clear case that this was an early battle of the Civil War. Absolutely. So, yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, just judging from the excerpt that I read, and I do plan to read the book, I've, I've got it ordered. Um, I, I think they do a very good job of threading that, you know, because there's a lot, there's a lot, you know, there's the history, there's now the political kind of side of it. There's even the, you know, the whole thing of how they kind of wrested control of it away from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Yes. Who controlled the Alamo for many, many years. Well, it, um, wasn't da- it wasn't the Daughters of the American Revolution. It was like the Daughters of the, te- some kind of, uh, Daughters of Texas. I don't remember what exactly what it was called, but it was a similar group. Right, oh, that, they were like, that's the AR. Okay. Yeah, there were com- there there were competing uh, groups of, of, of females or historians who were, one of them was headed by a, a woman who's at least partly Mexican, who was looking to do a sort of tell a more balanced story. Even back in the 1800s, these debates were happening. So it's it's, it's a fascinating book, and uh, you know, and and again, like, and and I feel like anybody who's reasonable, which admittedly is a small percentage of people these days, I think will find a lot. Lots of like in it. Absolutely, yeah. Read it, read it before you go visit the Alamo, and then and then marvel at how <laughs> how few exhibits it has, and how everything seems to be closed most of the time. And it just it just it's so underwhelming. And you go there and like, really, the, all this fighting over this site. Yeah. Uh, it it really need to do you know, either, yeah. you know just yeah. do more with it. If you're going to visit the Alamo, be sure to slot at least ten minutes before lunch. That gives you two whole circles around it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. All right, Omar, thank you so much for stopping in. 
and we will talk to you soon. Omar Gayaga has uh, bravely joined me to talk about Forget the Alamo, uh, which I reviewed this week on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Time for film. We go books, we go film, we go TV. Appetizer, entree, dessert. It is time to once again welcome Stephen Garrett. Hello. To, 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 the, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review. Stephen is our chief film critic, and he watches a lot of movies. It's all he does. It's not all he does. <laughs> I don't read books. No. You don't have time. That's where I, that's where I draw the line. You only watch, you read books about movies. I do. And I watch movies based on books. Yeah. So, so Stephen is caught in, in, in a Mobius strip of his own making. This week, <laughs> this week, you have reviewed for us The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Yes. Which is a sequel to a movie that I barely remembered. So it's one of those franchises like, um, I don't know, uh, like, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Analyze This or uh, The Whole Nine Yards. And I'm like, well, why is this a franchise? And now we have The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard Extended Universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, those are good examples, actually, because uh, The Hitman's Bodyguard, I had, like you, vaguely remembered it coming out and not really paying attention to it and then forgetting about it. And then this tortured title uh, sequel suddenly was on, you know, the release schedule, and I thought, really? Oh, okay. And so I figured, well, I should watch the original one. And I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to enjoy it. Mainly because you know, Ryan Reynolds is very uh, charming and Samuel L. Jackson is just doing his thing. And, uh, and it had some funny cameos pop up in the original movie, including Richard E. Grant, who pops up in uh, this movie as well. Um, and uh, so I, I really had very low expectations for the first one and pleasantly surprised. And I, again, with the sequel, had low expectations and I was pleasantly surprised. It's, it's not a great movie, but I don't think it's trying to be. Um, I think it's trying to be an action comedy and those... Travel well, especially overseas. Um, yeah. Comedy doesn't travel well overseas. Action does. And so if, as long as you set your action comedy in a European city, then you can make your return on your investment. And, and the original movie apparently did actually very well overseas, made more yeah. overseas than uh, domestic. And, yeah, uh, like, so you can see them lean into that with this. They're like, let's right. make this Eurocentric. Right. This seems to me to be like the kind of movie that would like play well on movie night in a youth hostel in Croatia or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, oh, we got nothing else to do. We're all broke. Let's watch the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. We yeah. all know. We all recognize Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like you got Samuel L. Jackson, Ryan Reynolds, Salma Hayek, who has international appeal, and Morgan Freeman's in this as well, right? Morgan Freeman pops up uh, like uh, improbably as Ryan Reynolds' dad or stepfather. Um, and it's a small role and he's supposed to be 90 years old, which is hilarious too. I mean, all of it is just ridiculous. And there's this traumatic past that Ryan Reynolds has that is triggered by uh, gelato. And he even says, Oh, I forgot gelato is triggering for you. And then they have this flashback, which is completely absurd. So, you know, the, 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 it's like the movie self owns before you can make fun of it. Um, which I think is part of its charm, frankly, if, if these kinds of things charm you, if they don't, this is not going to be an enjoyable watch for you. Yeah. But if you enjoy like watching Antonio Banderas play a, like a vengeful Greek tycoon and, you know, Selma Hayek talking about falling off his mega yacht, you know, because she had Gucci heels, 
which of course is a no-no. You never wear. You always take your shoes off before you get on a on a mega yacht. Yes. And um, you know, it's uh, it's fun. And you yeah. know, of course, it's preposterously. It's all about you know, as as all of these movies are. You know, they're always these these big. You know, like like Fast and Furious, which I'll talk about next week. You know, again, it is the stakes could not be higher. It is the state of the world. Then these guys are going to save us all, and it's yeah. always some cyber hack that's going to bring down, you know, uh, like the data systems of Europe or whatever, you know. Power the power grid of Texas. It's all about the power grid, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well, yeah, and there's no like, there's no uh, point where they move backwards in time, like like in uh, the, the uh, Tenet. Thankfully not. Thankfully okay. not. No, no. There's no. There's all no pretension. Four. But I have to say, there is a a real uh, uh, sincere amount of skill and thought that goes into the action scenes, which are, of course, preposterous, but still uh, quite enjoyable. I mean, there's a great nightclub kind of showdown that happens and uh, lots of good uh, destruction of um, European streets, little small towns, cobblestone streets with these huge Range Rovers. Um, It's fun. It's a perfect movie to watch on an airplane while you're flying to a European city. Yes. All right. Very good. All right. The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. I don't think it deserves any more conversation than this, but uh, but Steven sort of recommends it. Uh, I do want to talk to you real quick. We we haven't published this review yet, but you also uh, you also watched this uh, Pixar thing that's out yeah. this week called, called Luca, which sounds god awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, it is a Pixar thing. Like it's. Uh, it it was kind of heartbreaking because yeah. I kept thinking this is a Pixar movie, and it's it's not good. I, I, you know, kind of, you wonder what filters it didn't go through or how it slipped through and got released. It's, it's really subpar for, for even Pixar. Maybe it's humanizing to know that Pixar can make bad movies as well as good ones. But, um, you know, something did not get vetted, uh, principally the story. But even the designs of the characters, these sea monsters, it's about a sea monster. It's very much about an othering sort of, you know, kind of premise, this sea monster uh, realizes he can turn into a human um, when he comes on shore. So there's a bit of a Little Mermaid kind of vibe. Um, but he's a grotesque-looking sea monster. Yeah, and then whenever he gets wet, he turns back into the sea monster, and so he has to keep drying off. Um, but uh, it takes place in a little Italian village called Porto Rosso, and you think it's going to be really charming, but it really leans into so many Italian stereotypes. Like, everybody's obsessed with pasta, everybody, you know, all the men had big, thick mustaches. Um, right. The little boy like, gets obsessed like with... They do, like they do, do all the women have big, thick mustaches too? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the little boy gets obsessed with getting a Vespa. And it's all, oh, the yeah. whole movie is just obsessed with Vespas. And you see posters for Roman Holiday and Lestrade in the background. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it, I would say it's lazy stereotyping, but there's an Italian guy who directed it. Maybe he's Italian-American. Um, there's just not, it, it's emphasis in the way that Pixar movies usually aren't. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just, a, it's an oddity. It, it's yeah. barely 80 minutes, too. And, you know, these Pixar movies always are at two hours, so. Right. Um, it's strange. It's just strange and, and odd and heartbreaking and not good. Maybe it would have been better as one of those Pixar shorts in front of one of their real movies. Probably, yeah. Actually, you know, my wife and I were watching this and she actually failed um, about 20 minutes in when we both realized this is not a good movie. And she was bringing up memories of far superior Pixar shorts. <laughs> yeah. Thinking, yeah. Yeah. The animation's still really good. Still really yeah. good. They got that computer animation done. But. Yeah. All right. Well, 
It doesn't seem like Luca Mania is about to sweep the world, though. I, I think that's fair to say. There won't be a Luca 2 or 3 or 4 or whatever. Is he, and he doesn't live on the second floor. That's right. No. No, no, if only they got Suzanne Vega could have saved it, I think. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean admittedly, that is not a, a song about a uh, children's topic, but um, <laughs> but it's all I can think about because I'm old. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. All right, Stephen, thank you so much. You're on vacation, sure. and you took time out from your vacation to come chat with me on Clubhouse, which is my pleasure. a sign of your dedication and also of, of how you, this must not be that important of a vacation. So Talking uh, to you is always a vacation. Man. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so thank you, Stephen. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay, bye. All right. Film Globe Week in Review, recorded live on Clubhouse. I am Neil Pollock, King of the Wild Frontier. This is a website uh, where we cover books and films and streaming TV at www.bookandfilmglobe.com, the greatest culture site on the internet. It is now TV time. Time to talk about TV, and I'd like to talk, but this is sort of a bridge between TV and movies, but I'd like to talk with uh, Rachel Llewellyn, one of our fine contributors. Uh, I've been contributing to us for a long time. She wrote a Hello, Rachel. Hey, what's going on, Neil? Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, you know, just sitting here talking into my phone like I do every Friday. And uh, you wrote a, a, a lovely, wonderful, excellent piece about uh, Jean Smart, the actress Jean Smart, uh, who has had just ex- extraordinary resurgence and, uh, or uh, convergence on HBO recently. She's been in three hugely successful shows. Absolutely, yeah. She is HBO's princess and men. I should have paid you for writing that because that was fun. It was it was really fun to kind of take a little sail back through her career. Um, yeah. You know, just uh, uh, how absolutely vast and rich it is and what a talented character actress she is. She's, right. you know, now she's blowing up. But, um, yeah, a couple of her more recent pieces have been really favored by HBO, and, and it's just been – she's been on a roll, man. Well, well she was a lead uh, – the second lead character in Watchmen, which is a huge, you know, superhero hit. Um, and then she was in uh, in Hacks, re- most recently, where she played sort of an aging stand-up comic. And then also she was uh, Kate Winslet's mother in Merrill East Town. Indeed she was. Yeah, yeah, and she was brilliant in Hacks. I think we all kind of saw the parallels with, um, you know, Joan Rivers was definitely built on her character. You know, the the plastic surgery, you know, the little dogs. You know, the, right. the QVC products, I don't know if you remember back, you know, the early aughts or whatever. She had her QVC line of, you know, jewelry and clothes. She made tons of money off that. But, yeah. you know, very very based off Joan Rivers' character, you know, and uh, she's – you kind of get that generational gap in comedy, kind of the old school versus the new school with, you know, Ava. Hannah Einbinder is amazing. She doesn't really have any screen experience, but she has a lot of that live stage experience. Her, her background is, you know, like L.A. stand-up. So she kind of brings her own kind of raw energy to it that kind of really reflects her character's experience of kind of being a woman writing in comedy, sort of almost living her character's life. It's really interesting seeing the give and take between them. You know, and she's she's kind of reflective of a newer trend in comedy that I've noticed kind of challenging harassment, sort of favoring that realistic observational sort of humor over that kind of like crass kind of stereotype. Take my wife. No, please take her. Yeah. And that, and and so uh, Jean Smart's character represents that old school 
a borscht belt almost style. Exactly. Yeah, real hard edge kind of, you know, acid tongue type of stuff. At one point she jokes that if a street were named after her, it would be a dead end road with an abortion clinic on it. You know. That's a good joke. It's I mean, it's definitely out there. This this show doesn't pull any punches at all. I think it the the point was to sort of contrast her style with Ava, you know, kind of more about using comedy to question and break down her environment, Deborah's environment, you know, kind of resolve stuff in her personal life by, you know, being honest about it, having that honest kind of humor and I would kind of free her from that acid tongued style to sort of enjoy her craft in a pure kind of way. All right. So let's talk about Jean Smart's um filmography which you highlight in this piece obviously she first came to strong public attention as uh, as charlene in designing women which is a popular sitcom back in the in the 80s oh yeah we i grew up on it my mom watched it it was uh, a fun show and she was a great character she had like a solid five-year run and it really kind of made her household name i think it's a it's a classic show did you watch it of course. I mean, I, I, there's no TV show I haven't watched, Rachel. I mean, I, it's all I do is watch TV. But, like, extensively, have you? Have yes. You I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm of the age. He was out in the 80s. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly, you know, I could name, I could do a lot of designing women trivia. You know, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> That's awesome. I, I'm a, I'm a, a yes, I'm, I'm a client of Sugar Baker <laughs> Industries. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, they did it. They did a table read last year. You know, those terrible COVID table readings that you were kind of railing against, you know, yeah, with yeah. these weird like celebrity mashups that don't go at all. Yeah. They did uh, like a table reading. It was like her and like Annie Potts and I think Scott Bakula. Was Scott, did Scott back? Was Scott Bakula playing the Delta Burke character? I have no idea who he was playing, but in like I, I didn't actually bring. I can bring myself to watch yeah. it, but, right, uh, but yeah, right. they're, they're they're saying there's going to be a sequel. They're going to do a sequel with like their supposedly their daughters of mm. you know all of the Sugar Baker characters, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> yeah, apparently Gene Smart was supposed to be guesting on that, but who knows? That was back in like 2018. So yeah, we need an extended designing women universe. Uh, <laughs> like re- we're re-boot. talking about the endless sequels. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, you highlight a bunch of stuff in this piece from like sort of sort of more realistic roles in in dark comedies like Youth and Revolt and Garden State, and also uh, she played real broad. She played really broad uh, in the Brady Bunch movie. Yeah. Opposite Michael McKean, they were kind of the antagonists of the Brady family. I, I love that movie, and she's hilarious in that. Um, and then also, I love this. And well, and then she played Eileen Warnos, uh, the the serial killer, <laughs> be- before um, Charlize Theron won an Oscar for it. <laughs> Jean Smart played that role. She was good. She was pretty good. Yeah. She talked about, you know, TV at the time, you know, not really allowing them to be uh, explicitly descriptive that it was, you know, she was in a relationship uh, with the other female character in the film. She's portrayed more as a friend. You know, (laughs) um, lots of lots of socially distanced walks in the sunset, you know, that type of stuff. So it's very veiled. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting take. And she does a really good job. Yeah. Um, well, then there's also uh, this is this is a great get for you. Uh, you you featured a clip from uh, a, a Broadway revival of one of my favorite uh, uh, farce uh, comedy farces, theater comedy farces, The Man Who Came to Dinner. And there's this incredible scene that we feature on the site where she plays opposite Nathan Lane and you know goes toe to toe with him in like really broad, high flute and Broadway comedy. 
Oh, absolutely. And her, she brings the physical comedy to bear like in a really big way there. And it, it actually communicates really well. I started off watching it all irritated, like, ugh, theater people, you know, and then I get like five minutes in and I was just captivated by her, you know, her, her repartee with Nathan Lane, who you can see him like reacting to her acting. You can see how tickled he is. And it's just yeah. such a cool interaction. It's darling. Look at that poor, sweet, tortured face. Let me kiss it. Oh, 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 oh. You poor darling. Your eyes have a kind of gallant compassion. How drawn you are. Sherry, my sweet. I want to cry. <laughs> All right, you've made a very nice entrance, dear. <laughs> now relax. Sherry, darling, I've been so worried. And now seeing you in that chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's laughing. Funny. He's cracking yeah. him up. <laughs> yeah, he's responding to her, you know, really responding to her. And it's just so cool to see that kind of uh, electricity live. Yeah. yeah, so it's great. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great piece and it's... Um, you know, it really points out the this. Um, it's interesting to me that this is an actor who has been in the public eye for forty years plus, and is now coming into her own and beginning to realize, oh wow, this is like she's one of the like the great character actors in in TV history. Absolutely, yes. I, that's a very astute assessment. I, you know, she's. She is, I think, part of a whole cadre of Hollywood actresses who are experienced enough to really start picking and choosing roles that they enjoy. And I think that I've noticed a trend of, you know, these women who, again, are veteran actors. They're just game for anything. They're up for anything. They're right. down to do new genres, work with younger directors. You know, I think of Betty White, you know, just embracing any genre, you know, um, you, portrayals of older actors in the past who are female, you know, like golden girls, you know, you think of like Jessica Tandy in a cocoon, you know, or, she was or driving this in Daisy. Cocoon. Yeah. yeah. Right. Helen well, Mirren's 75. You know what movie she just finished making? Fast and Furious 9. <laughs> right. Well, here's the thing. So, so we're sitting at this point now where like, finally, like, you know, I remember there was a documentary made a few years ago about how women in Hollywood vanish after 40 I don't think that's the case anymore. Not at all. Not at all. I think they translate beautifully to newer directors, every genre. There, are, a lot of these women are doing voice work. You know, yeah. um, Angelica Houston is Wes Anderson darling. You know, yeah. you talk about Tennessee. Dolly Parton, you're from Tennessee. You'll appreciate this. Dolly Parton is celebrating her 75th birthday with a 15-city global tour. And yeah. she's planning, like, a half-billion-dollar expansion of Dollywood in Tennessee. So you can go visit her new resort and lodge that she's building. Uh, well, thank you for that, uh, that uh, Dolly Parton plug. Uh, she needs the help from the Book and hey, Film Globe yeah. Weekend Review. <laughs> thank hey, you're you not the only way you know uh, is trivia. But yeah, you know, yeah. the point is that all of these older women are, like, getting into it, and they're getting yeah. it. You know, I'm yeah. thinking Susan Sarandon, I, the list goes on. But it's a really yeah. encouraging and just yeah. it's fun to watch. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it is a, an excellent trend in entertainment and film and TV. Uh, the kind of thing we cover at Book and Film Globe. Rachel? We'll talk to you soon. I, I know Thanks you got having me. Yeah, you bet. And we'll and we'll bring you back uh, to talk about more uh, more things. No, it 
massive transition into superhero mode. I'm going to um, bring my friend and Book and Film Globe contributor Nick Tangborn, a major comic book dork. I, 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 I think it's <laughs> safe to call you I, that, right? I prefer the term nerd, but that's fine. That's fine, nerd. But I, you know, I know that I was talking to another friend, a mutual friend of ours, this week, and he's like, "Oh yeah, Nick was over at my house giving me a bunch of '70s Conan the Barbarian comics." <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the, the fact that you have those in reserve is, is a sign that, that, that you're yep. a fixed Tianato. So, I wanted Very to. And I wrote a couple of comic book pieces this week, but I want—I I don't like to just talk to myself. I mean, I do, but I, I, I prefer to talk to other people about this stuff. The, the first one is um, is about the show Loki which is airing on Disney Plus, the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, TV show. Um, I, it, uh, I mean, I love this show. It's terrific. It's like, a, it's like a Time Bandits combined with Norse mythology, you know, combined, I combined with, who knows, it's like Quantum Loki. He's just traveling through time and creating mischief like he does and battling this, um, not battling, like dealing with this weird kind of um, madman-like Time Variance Authority, which is like this this uh, extra-dimensional bureaucracy. It's a great show. Right, and then spending the other half sitting in a room talking with Owen Wilson. Uh, yes. In a sort of Wes Anderson setting um, yes. over, you know, coffee. Uh, it, yeah. It, it, it is a pretty amazing mashup of, 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 of uh, disparate um, sort of film ideas and comic ideas. Yeah, it's a great show. So, uh, I mean... Unquestionably, and, and you know, you know, if you're not enjoying it, you're you're dead inside. But the but the reason that this show has been in the headlines, so to speak, other than the fact that it's you know a Marvel Cinematic Universe project, uh, is that uh, there's there was something revealed in one of Loki's pieces of Loki's bureaucratic paperwork in the show that his gender is fluid, fluid. So suddenly, yep. like Loki, who's played by a, a man. He, he, him, pronoun man, Tom Hiddleston, uh, is now a gender fluid character, and it was like the, the the extremely online people went crazy saying Loki's gender fluid. He's the first gender fluid character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's the hero to all gender fluid people, and I'm like, what the hell is this about? Right. Well, um, people are responding to the phrase gender fluid. Right. They're not responding to the, uh, the Loki's always been. A man, a girl, a little boy, uh, 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 a shape-shifting horse, (laughs) right, that gave birth to an eight-legged horse. Um, So he's been a a father, a mother, uh, since North mythology, and then certainly uh, in the mid-2000s with Kieran Gillen's run on Journey into Mystery and Al Ewing after that, um, really bringing these concepts to the fore where for a while he was Lady Loki, and then Al Ewing decided he was bisexual. To add on top of that, so it's not new. I mean, the the thing that strikes me is it's sort of like in The Walking Dead. I remember there was a big uproar when, and this is a spoiler, so I, I hope it's okay. That <laughs> I, I think it's okay to do Walking Dead spoilers at this point. Yeah, yeah. So when Stephen Ewan's character is bashed to death by Negan, um, there was an uproar online that of people that I knew saying this is this is torture porn. This should not be on television. And and my response was it was in the comic book. It was exactly the same scene. It's been coming for about ten years. What, are you right. are you surprised? Right, right. Is gender fluid? It's just the, the 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 phrasing. I think is what people are responding to. Right. Well, the the phrasing and all you know and all, I, you know it, the, the there's sort of a political football 
uh, with the phrase sure. gender fluid. Um, and, and the fact that it's on Disney TV. Right. And, and then, you know, at the end of last week's episode, there's this uh, a uh, one ho- woman wearing sort of a, a, like a one-horned uh, tiara shows up and uh, possibly is a female version of Loki. Maybe. We don't know this for sure yet. And for so sure, like, but uh, I, 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 I'll, all signs point to yes. Yes. So we have a female Loki, a male Loki. So uh, it, it's just interesting because, you know, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, when it started, was very kind of straight white man. You know, Iron Man, Captain America, um, the Thor, et cetera, et cetera. And it's increasingly getting, like, more and more diverse and more and more out there. Um, and, I mean, I'm not, I'm not – it's not a criticism. I mean, it's still the same very entertaining, uh, you know – yeah, well, uh, although, you know, themes under the surface have been there for a long time, like the X-Men being a metaphor for gay identity yeah. um, and, and civil rights movement. Uh, you know, the, these these themes have been undercurrents and then have been brought to the fore. Uh, I mean, Brian Singer famously did it in the, in the X-Men movie, the, the X2, I, I think it was. Um, when, when the mother asked, can you try, have you tried not being a mutant? Right. Well, I guess you're right, right, sure, of course, but, you know, and this, but, you know, gender fluidity is, is a more, you know, at this point, like, you know, being, being gay is, is, is not a widely controversial thing, uh, but gender fluid, gender fluidity is still something that is considered to be, um, you know, a little avant-garde, a little out there, like, that's not something that, it's not, you know, embraced in the, in the American mainstream, uh, and, you know, in the show, the show doesn't talk about it. It's not like, you know, Loki's giving speeches about being gender fluid. Like, it, would, it doesn't even occur to him. Well, it's an problem. Easter egg. I mean, it really, it's like if you were eagle-eyed enough to spot it in the paperwork, then, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I, like we talked about, I'm, I'm obsessed with this stuff. And I didn't see it on, on first viewing, of, of, you know. So You weren't looking at the fine print. pretty eagle-eyed. You weren't looking at the Right, I wasn't looking at the fine print of Loki, no. Yeah, uh, but it, I mean, it's a show worth looking at the fine print of because it's 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 so damn entertaining. Yeah, and so yeah. you know my you know my I, I title my article "Who cares if Loki is gender fluid?" It's kind of what it comes down to is like, okay, maybe he is. I mean, he is. He definitely is. You look at the comic canon, and it's like, ah, doesn't doesn't really matter. Yep, exactly. Right. Well, the comic canon and, and and Norse mythology. Yeah, and Norse. I guess. Yeah, I mean, going beyond that, it's like. Right. If it's good enough for Norse mythology, it's good enough for me. It's good so, enough for Disney. All right. So the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, is um, I wrote another piece uh, this week about uh, the current trend, not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is going in all kinds of weird and awesome directions, but in just sort of general second-tier superhero properties, the trend of superhero family dramas. Uh, I titled my piece, This is Super Us, and I focus mostly on um, two new shows, one of which has already been canceled. One is, one is, the one that has not been canceled is this uh, terrific animated show on Amazon Prime called Invincible, based on an image comic series by Robert Kirkman, and then the one, one of the you know really like legendarily bad TV shows of all time. Uh, this was on Netflix and has been canceled. Uh, Jupiter, uh, Jupiter's Legacy, which uh, both of which feature these like sort of superhero families where it's like these kids have super parents and they have to deal with the burdens, the, the, the burdens, everyday burdens of, of being a superhero. And I was just yep. like, I'm just, I don't know. I just kind of find super kids kind of lame, you know? 
Well, uh, you know, I mean, not not to well actually you, but but it, it, this is another thing that's been in comics. Uh, I mean, since the beginning. Uh, if you go back to, I mean, this Superman story is about adoption, right? It's about sure. um, a, a, a quote unquote abandonment of the child, and then and then the, the kindly parents adopt him and you know raise him to be to be a good son. Um, and then of course there's that you know Superman family later on, Supergirl and Crypto the dog and all that, uh, all those characters. Um, and and Batman of course is the story of of watching his parents die and and deciding to to avenge them. Right, um, and Sp- you know, that's been going since the eighties, right? Right, Spider Man's so, Uncle Ben was killed, and I mean it's all it's all been in the comics all along. But I mean, but but then you get to Fantastic Four, which is the archetypal. Uh, family drama. I mean, you've got uh, mom and dad, you know, Reed and Sue, and you've got the baby brother, and then of course they have the child Franklin, and um, and then and then a daughter. And Franklin is the sort of unrealized, most powerful being in the Marvel universe, and um, and that causes all sorts of drama. And the kids get into uh, time travel trouble, and um, and there's uh, is Sue cheating on Reed with with Prince Namor, the sub the Submariner. Oh, so the, you know, I didn't know that, that plot line. That's juicy. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's been a recurring plot line since mm-hmm. since the '60s. That's uh, pre- so pretty pretty fishy. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> um, but, but you know, anything in comic culture uh, worth doing is worth way overdoing. And so mm-hmm. if, you, if you start to, if you, um, like I did this week, uh, start searching family trees in comics. So Wolverine's family tree alone has 46 people in it. Right. Uh, and it, it's absurd. It's, it's, it's completely absurd. But you've got, you know, 40, 50 years of continuity. Mm-hmm. uh where um, you've got all these overlapping characters and, and um, writers struggling to come up with creative situations, and so family is going to naturally enter the picture. I, I do. I, I, I get how Invincible and Jupiter's Legacy are very much about uh, uh, you know this, these these sort of uh, negative, overly dramatic interactions between superpowered people, but I think that that has been um, around for some time. Yeah. Well, my point about those shows is that you know. It's not the themes, obviously. You know, comic book, the comic book uh, creators have been running out of ideas since the beginning. Yeah. Um, it's it's the uh, it's the over the topness. I mean, I think, again, I liked Invincible. There's a lot of exciting action in it and some cool side, side characters. Uh, but you know, there's a scene where like the father and son like both have superpowers and they're like hovering above the city playing catch. I mean, it's so over that. It's so hammering you over the head with a baseball. Right. They're throwing the baseball around the world, and it's coming back. And I'm like, all right, all right. And right, right. But, but but then but then so let's step back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe because WandaVision is 100 percent a family drama. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I, you know. And and again, like I like the sitcom parodies in WandaVision, and I like the pew pew witch fights. And all the stuff with the, you know, with, with the- right. But there's also the scene of Wanda and Vision uh, hovering in their in their home uh, because they're having an argument, and you know, so they both suddenly are, are in the air. Um, it, to me, that that's kind of a mirror image of, of, of you know what you were talking about in Jupiter's yeah. Legacy. So I, uh, yeah, I like, and again, like that's fine, but I don't, I couldn't stand the super kids. 
in that in that one division. They were they, they were just weak. You know, they reminded me of that that, that the lame-o super kid in that Superman Returns movie. The one the scene which I feature in the piece where this kid throws a piano at a bad guy who's trying to beat up Lois Lane. I'm just like enough with the super kids. Enough with the burden of being the kid of a super. You know, Jupiter. I mean, oh yeah. Well, when, when when Quicksilver or Pietro her her. Um, her recast brother shows up. He's like Poochie on The Simpsons. I mean, it's sort of like this absurd character that's out of line with everything else we've seen before, which is explained narratively. But, but um, yeah, the, the the kids are super lame for sure. Super lame, and you know, and again, in Jupiter's Legacy, you know, and again, this has been a widely mocked show, and it has been canceled. But you know, it was it was highly rated, and you have like one kid who's like. Wants to give up to dad, and then there's the Supergirl Chloe. Her name is Chloe, for God's sake. You have a superhero named Chloe who is like all she does is like have sex with and 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 do, and do drugs and like you know has sex with a guy and then throws him through a wall because he says something she doesn't like. And I'm just like, and she's so tortured by being a super person, this daughter of a super person, and it's just it's just it's just so terrible. Right, and I think what you're responding to is is Mark Miller, the Scottish writer that created uh, those characters um, and has done uh, you know uh, the kick-ass movies. Is he loves to take these sort of adolescent uh, fantasy characters and then do horrendous things to their bodies? Uh, right, they're they're beat up, they're bloody, there's gore everywhere. Um, he loves this sort of over the top very adult take on these ideas and he and he just keeps pressing the same button over and over again which I, right. you know which gets tiresome and you know maybe i'm just old and i grew up with the superman family where it was like you know crypto the super dog rescuing a cat or whatever and that was super family you know it wasn't it wasn't like uh, you know a, like an invincible where the father like beats it repeatedly beats his teenage son to a bloody pulp i'm like okay yes. i get it Father's yeah, yeah. The, the, the themes have become uh, not more sophisticated, just darker. Yeah, and uh, you know, and none of the kids in these shows are even gender fluid. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> right. All right, Nick. Thank you so much, Nick Tangborn. Thank you for Thanks, indulging Neil. me and chit chatting with me about uh, comic book families. It's just a little, a little something, a little something that was eating at me this week, and now, now it's gone. And so we come to the end of another Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. I am playing the Superman theme by John Williams to close the greatest superhero movie of all time, perhaps, and definitely the greatest superhero movie music of all time, even better than Danny Elfman's Batman theme, in my opinion. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. This is the greatest pop culture site on the internet. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to my contributors. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. I always value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. 
Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.